Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome back for another case this week, another episode. Yeah, welcome back everybody. Thank you for joining us once again. Before we crack on with this week's episode, we will say a big thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. So thank you very much to Nicola Jarvis, Casey Shupelius, Ali Wallace, Jess Rooks and Stuart Davidson. Thank you so much, everybody. Yeah, thank you to all of all of you guys and all of our existing Patreon supporters as well. If you would like to join these guys and gain access to loads of exclusive Seeing Red content, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. So this week we are heading back to 1988 to revisit a horrifying act of international terrorism that is still to this day considered to be the single deadliest case of mass murder ever recorded in British criminal history and it ranks as one of the deadliest terrorist attacks in the world. The tragic events that occurred in the Scottish market town of Lockerbie continues to haunt the families and friends of the victims, many of whom are survivors themselves, having witnessed with their own eyes the death carnage and destruction that rained down from the sky above them without any forewarning on a cold and dark Wednesday evening just four days before Christmas. Lockerbie is a small town in the Dumfries and Galloway region of Scotland located approximately 75 miles southwest of Edinburgh. The town has a rich history dating back to the Roman era when it was an important settlement on the route between Hadrian's Wall and the Antoine Wall. Never heard of the Antoine Wall, only Hadrian's Wall. How about you, Mark? Sounds very fancy. No, never heard of that. No, isn't it funny how we just know Hadrian's Wall and you think of elephants, but there we go. And in the centuries that followed, it became a key centre for the wool trade and a popular stop for travellers on the main road between Edinburgh and Carlisle. I think what's what bothers me so much about this well there's so much that bothers me about this case of course there is but that it's one of those things now isn't it we hear Lockerbie we hear the word and we don't think of the place that beautiful place we think of this tragedy and I think that's really sad isn't it oh I completely agree it's one of those places now where the name is just the disaster and it's it's really really sad yeah really sad With a population of around 4,000 people, the town is considered by many to be a quiet, peaceful community that is known for its friendly people, beautiful countryside, historic landmarks and a charming town centre featuring a range of independent shops, cafes and restaurants. And like you said, Mark, if it wasn't for what we're going to go on and discuss today, that's what it would be known as and you'd think of it like maybe somewhere close to me, like in the Cotswolds, where you just think of it as quaint and lovely. Or... Conversely, we we possibly would never have heard of the place unless we happened to have been touring around Scotland on holiday. Yeah, Yeah. true. Yeah. The town's main landmarks include the Lockerbie Tower, a 16th century tower house that has been converted into a museum, and Drivesdale Lodge Visitor Centre, which provides information about the Lockerbie bombing, the subject of this week's episode, which took place on a bitterly cold winter's night in 1988. We are going to walk you through the barbaric events of that night, but this episode will also discuss the subsequent years of international investigation and the relentless fight by the families and friends of the victims to see justice finally prevail. The story begins on the evening of Wednesday, December the 21st, 1988. It was the beginning of winter solstice, which was, somewhat aptly, the darkest night of the year. 
Lockerbie has always been a relatively safe and peaceful place to live. Like any other town, it had its share of problems, but crime rates were comparatively low back then, as comparatively low back then as they are today. Life in Lockerbie tended to be low volume and uneventful. In fact, before the tragic events of that fateful December night, most people in the UK probably hadn't heard of Lockerbie. However, fate was about to intervene and change that forever. By the following morning, the eyes of the entire world would be firmly fixed on the small market town, and the name Lockerbie would henceforth forever be synonymous with a senseless tragedy on a deadly scale that had never been seen before in the UK. Wednesday, December 21st, 1988. It was just after 6pm. Night had fallen, and the windswept temperatures outside were bitterly cold. The snow-covered streets were mostly quiet. Most of the residents of Lockerbie were keeping warm inside with their families, having dinner, watching television, getting ready for the following day. It was just your average midweek evening. Nothing was out of the ordinary. At around the same time, 330 miles south at Heathrow Airport in London, Pan American Flight 103, a Boeing 747, carrying 259 passengers and crew members, was taxiing down the runway, awaiting permission from air traffic control to take off and begin its overnight journey to New York City, USA. The flight had originated from Frankfurt in Germany several hours earlier and had transported several passengers and luggage items to the UK. After taking on more passengers at Heathrow, its onward journey was scheduled to take off at 18.03 and was expected to arrive in New York at around 11.30pm. There were no departure issues and the plane took off on time. About 15 minutes after takeoff, the plane reached its cruising altitude of 31,000 feet and continued its course, heading up towards Scotland and it was there that it was intended to steer west and begin a straight line course across the Atlantic Ocean towards its final destination. I always find it really weird that planes that are going to America, whenever I've flown to America, obviously they always go kind of north first and then they go east, west rather. Is it west? Yeah. Yeah, uh, west. Onto America. So I just find it really weird that they don't just go west straight out of Heathrow or Gatwick or wherever you're flying from. They always go all the way up to Scotland. And you wouldn't necessarily know that unless you kind of knew it. And I kind of think the residents of Lockerbie, I wonder if they actually knew that these planes that was kind of the flight path and they were under that flight path for planes that were traveling to new york yeah it's really weird i think it's because when we look at a map on a piece of paper it's a globe that's been flattened out to make it easy for your eyes that's how it's drawn and depending on what country the map's been made in depends on where's the middle and so you just get used to thinking the earth is the shape that you see it on a flat piece of paper but actually, yeah. let's get onto the flat Earth stuff again. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, let's let's do that. But uh, but these no. planes were, were were cruising at this point. By the time they reach Lockerbie, they are cruising at thirty odd thousand feet. So they're so high up, you would barely see them. You would just about see them, but they wouldn't have really heard them over Lockerbie. So yeah, I just find it fascinating that every day multiple planes would have been flying over their town seven miles up in the air, and they would have been oblivious to that until this incident happened. I'm not going to lie, I've flown numerous times and it still freaks me out a little bit that a plane can fly and can be in the air and that it's just bonkers, isn't it? I just don't have that engineering knowledge to understand or appreciate the science behind it. I just put my faith in it that it's going to work. It's something, I'm exactly the same. I'm sure we've spoken about it before, 
it's something I've just had to put to bed. I'm just like, it's okay. I don't need to have it explained to me for the millionth time. I don't need to understand it. I just need to kind of accept it. But I was on a plane a week ago and literally as it was taken off, I had the exact same thought. I just thought, how the fuck is this possible? How has that just happened? But it does. And you just have to accept it. Yeah, it's weird. And if any of our listeners are not great as flyers, don't listen to my next sentence, just plug your ears for a second or something. But after our flight caught fire coming back from Jamaica and we had to get the next one, um, when I got home, I then Googled just to see, and apparently it's really common and sometimes they catch fire in the middle of the air and they'll just carry on and then land at the next safe place and then they'll carry on once they've either fixed the plane, which I just think it's on fire let's just get rid of it and get a new one. Um, Or they swap it, which is, I think what they did when we were in Jamaica was they fixed the plane. And I, I, I didn't want to look, I just wanted to get home. But once I was home, I googled it. And it's, it's just actually quite not, I wouldn't say common is the right word, but it it is not rare. And it really, I was just like, Oh, my gosh, I just have to, yeah, put my trust in that pilot and the people who filled up the airplane, I guess. Yeah, and not, and honestly, I think the key is to just not think about it too much. That's where the problems come in. I definitely agree with you on that one. So yeah, as I said from the ground, the air traffic control base in London saw no cause for concern as Pan American Flight 103 appeared as merely a dot on their radar following the pre-arranged flight path as it left London and headed north. Of the 259 passengers on board, 179 of them were American expats who were heading home to spend the Christmas holidays with their families and loved ones. However, there was still a wide variety of nationalities travelling that night, including 31 British nationals, as well as various other travellers from Hungary, Argentina, France, Sweden, Germany, India and more. And it's easy now to envision their final moments, reclining their seats to get some sleep, watching an in-flight movie, perhaps just chilling with a newspaper, but none of them could have possibly anticipated the horrible fate that was about to befall them, not even an hour into the flight. Because beneath them, stowed away in the cargo hold, amongst 200 or so other luggage items, was a brown Samsonite suitcase that contained several piles of neatly folded clothes and a Toshiba cassette player. And to the untrained and uninitiated, that case would have appeared normal. Airport security back in 1988 was a far more relaxed formality than the paranoid, rigorous process that it is now. That isn't to say that there were no security processes to follow, but at the same time, the UK had yet to fall victim to serious air travel terrorism. This was a concept that, in 1988, was still a relatively new and emerging threat. Thus, the brown Samsonite suitcase had raised no flags and roused no suspicion, and it had been loaded onto the plane along with the others. However, what the airport staff hadn't realised was that expertly hidden within the radio cassette player was more than 450 grams of explosive materials, as well as a detonator set to a timer which was rigged to explode not long after takeoff. At 7 o'clock, as the plane crossed over into Scottish Air Territory, Pan American Flight 103's pilot, Captain James Macquarie, a highly experienced and respected aviator with over 30 years of flying experience, made radio contact with a Scottish air traffic control centre on the ground and requested that all clear to steer west and commence the flight's planned transatlantic crossing. After a brief check, the plane was granted permission to head out over the sea. The pilot acknowledged the communication and the plane was observed on radar to be gradually turning. However, just two minutes later, at 19.02, Pan American Flight 103 inexplicably vanished from air traffic control's radar. 
the aircraft's black box, the device used to record and monitor the activity on the plane in real time, recorded a frighteningly loud bang. Air traffic control frantically attempted to contact the plane, but got no response. I always think for the air traffic controllers, people monitoring the movement of these planes at the time, but the minute it disappears from radar, they must just instantly know that something catastrophic has happened and it's fallen out of the sky. And I just can't imagine that feeling in that no, room, in that control room. No, and it must be a bit of your training room. that you just never think you're going to have to deal with. And it's, yeah. it's talked to you about like what happens if this happens, who do you alert, but you would never feel like you have to do that. No, they must just go into shock as much as a... Because they're really calm and collected people, I guess. But yeah, they're, they're still human beings. They must kind of go into an element of just shock of, shit, this has really just happened, hasn't it? I just can't, yeah. I just can't even imagine. At around the same time, a local farmer was working late in one of his fields in Lockerbie, Scotland, and was alarmed to see a sudden flash of blinding light cutting through the darkness and illuminating the entire sky from several thousand feet above his head, which was immediately followed by the loud, ear-piercing sound of a catastrophic explosion. The force of the bomb was powerful enough to tear a hole in the fuselage, which caused the cabin and cockpit to instantly depressurise. Milliseconds later, more than £200,000 of liquid kerosene inside the damaged fuel tanks ignited. The ensuing blast instantly killed every living person on board and engulfed the severed wreckage into an enormous fireball, which began to fragment into hundreds of pieces as it plummeted at a rate of around 500 miles an hour, so that's more than half the speed of sound, directly down onto the town below. 46 seconds after the initial explosion, the first shards of flaming debris began to rain down on the town like fires of hell. The wings and parts of the fuselage of the aircraft struck the earth at such high velocity that it caused an earth tremor which measured 1.6 on the Richter scale. The worst affected area was Sherwood Crescent, a tiny residential street to the south of the town centre. Several houses within the blast radius were decimated by the flaming debris and instantly reduced to a burning pile of rubble. All of the affected houses were occupied. The fireballs smashed effortlessly through roofs and ceilings and exploded on impact, causing untold carnage and destruction as the houses immediately began to burn under the weight and devastation of the wreckage. And as for the people inside the houses, they never stood a chance. A nearby petrol station was also struck, causing the fuel storage tanks to explode. And the chaos on the ground was so intense and widespread that the pilot of another aircraft passing by overhead radioed Scottish air traffic control to report that they had a visual on the crash site and urged them to send emergency help and to send lots of it. Shock, confusion and fear swept across the small town as the terrified residents were forced to immediately flee from their homes in whatever they they happened to be wearing at the time. Some didn't even have the time to put shoes on as they ran out of the warmth of their homes and onto the bitterly cold, snowy streets outside and they were only greeted then by the unimaginable scenes. The devastation that surrounded them resembled what they would later describe as an apocalypse. A resident of Lockerbie who was in her house at the time of the explosion later recalled, There was a massive explosion and the whole sky lit up. It was like something out of a war movie. I heard a loud bang and felt the ground shake. And when I looked out of the window, I could see debris falling from the sky. As the first fire crews and ambulance units from the local area began to arrive, they were shocked by the sheer scale of the disaster. It was clear to them that the incident was far, far too big for them to handle alone. They needed a lot of help. 
Emergency service workers from miles around rushed to Lockerbie and battled bravely throughout the night to put out the fires and rescue survivors from the disaster area, but their efforts were heavily hampered by the widespread fire and rubble, as well as the darkness, the rain, strong winds and the heavy snowfall. With no way of knowing how many people had died already, paramedics focused their efforts on the dozens of residents who had sustained serious injuries. And with every hour that passed by, droves of emergency service units from all over Scotland and Northern England continued to arrive in Lockerbie to offer their assistance in the search and rescue efforts. Several platoons from the British Army and Royal Air Force were also deployed to lend a hand. This kind of reminds reminds me a little bit as well of when we looked at Aberfan. I know it's not on the same scale whatsoever, but people just travelling from all across the country just to try and help in some way. And then... Also with Aberfan, you saw all of the, um, uh, what they called like the funeral workers, just going to try and lend a hand with the dead as well. It's that real everybody from the country just wanting to get there and do their bit to help if possible. And that was the episode you did on the mining disaster in Aberfan, if anybody's not familiar with it. Brilliantly covered in an episode of The Crown, actually. Yeah. I can't remember what yeah. series, but there's a whole episode that focuses that on episode. that. Yeah, just so incredibly sad and, yeah, devastated a, a very small community, as did Lockerbie. You know, this incident in Lockerbie, yeah. Very similar in, in lots of ways, even though they're, they're two totally different disasters. Mm-hmm. But what you see off the back of it is very similar, yeah. A base was swiftly set up in a local secondary school to help the rescue workers to get organised and properly coordinate the search and rescue efforts. Before long, the area was swarming with local and national news crews from several media outlets, all desperately trying to report on the tragedy. One journalist conducted a televised interview with a local resident who'd been close to the petrol station when the plane had come crashing down, and he described his horror as he saw a large piece of metal smash into the forecourt at such high speed that it caused a sonic boom-like sound upon impact, and this was closely followed by an aeroplane chair which contained the charred remains of whoever had been sat in it. That's what I remember quite a lot about this because I would have only been six when this happened. So I don't, I don't think I remember it at all from the time. But obviously, it, it's been in the news an awful lot over the years. Of course, it has, and I think that's something I remember reading or hearing that a lot of a lot of the passengers on that plane plummeted to the ground, seven miles to the ground, still strapped to their seats. Um, and were found that way, you know, these seats had sort of separated and spread across, you know, several miles of countryside in, in Scotland. And yeah, lots of people were still strapped to their seats, just devastating to think of it. Yeah, it's just horrible, isn't it? As the sun rose the next morning, rescue workers were still sifting through the smouldering rubble, looking for possible survivors. By that time, there had been several confirmed fatalities amongst the Lockby residents, with many more people still unaccounted for. However, if the disaster itself wasn't traumatic enough, the light of a new day was about to reveal the full and unimaginable extent of what had happened the night before. As the darkness gave way to daylight, the town of Lockerbie could easily have been mistaken as the scene of a Hollywood apocalypse movie. Entire houses had been demolished and burnt to a shell, shards of the decimated aircraft lay strewn around in countless hundreds of pieces, And it wasn't just plane wreckage that had fallen from the sky. And like you said, Mark, I think this for me is possibly the most difficult bit to think about because to their utter horror, several traumatised residents of the town reported having the charred and severed body parts of flight passengers landing in their gardens, their driveways, their rooftops. 
Some of the corpses had smashed their way through glass windows, and the force of the blast sent various pieces of the victims crashing to the ground for miles around. Hundreds of pieces of burned and shredded human remains were discovered not just in Lockerbie, but in neighbouring towns too. And that's it, isn't it? Because it is, without being too graphic, it is shredded remains because a bomb has gone off. So the the injuries that you sustain when a bomb goes off are quite specific. So limbs being blown off, for example. So I think, yeah, when those parts of human remains were falling to earth, they were quite recognisable. They weren't all charred. They were quite recognisable as that is an entire leg that has just landed through my conservatory roof. You know, that was the kind of shit that was going down. Yeah. Every single street in Lockerbie had been hit by falling evidence of the disaster. Scattered all over the place on top of roofs, cars and embedded inches deep into people's lawns and gardens were twisted sheets of metal as well as miscellaneous personal items such as coins, crushed suitcases, broken bottles, like you said before, the aeroplane seats, people's shoes, spectacles and of course human body parts. By the following afternoon, aside from the 259 poor souls who'd perished on Pan Am Flight 103, 11 people on the ground had been confirmed as killed. Most of them had burned alive in the safety of their own homes after flaming parts of the fuselage of the aircraft had plummeted through the brickwork of their houses whilst they were relaxing inside. It is believed that the first property to have been struck was 13 Sherwood Crescent, which was obliterated when the wing section of the plane hit the house at more than 500 miles an hour and exploded on impact, creating a 47-metre-wide crater in the property's foundations and killing its two occupants instantly. Their bodies were incinerated completely by the fire and were never found. Several other houses and their foundations were destroyed and 21 others were damaged beyond repair, prompting them to be demolished. An entire family of four was killed when their house at 15 Sherwood Crescent exploded under the impact of the fuselage, as were a couple and their infant daughter at 16 Sherwood Crescent. Other Lockerbie residents who died included two elderly widows aged 82 and 81, who also both lived in Sherwood Crescent. They were the two oldest victims of the disaster, and most of the bodies of the Sherwood Crescent victims were never recovered. The town hall had to be set up as a makeshift mortuary, as emergency workers, along with several brave civilian volunteers, began the morbid task of collecting the various body parts from around the town and attempting to identify who they had once belonged to. It was an extremely complicated and traumatic task, not helped at all by the severely disfigured and charred state of the bodies. Some were still strapped into their seats, whilst others had been blown into several pieces. However, the use of DNA testing proved to be an effective tool in identifying what remained of them. And it's understood that so many body parts were recovered within the first 48 hours that the town hall ran out of available space in which to keep them all. In the immediate aftermath of the tragedy, waves of grief and disbelief swept across the town and the entire United Kingdom entered a state of mourning. It was almost inconceivable that this could have happened in a place like Lockerbie, and the question on everyone's lips burned with just as much intensity as the crash itself. Why? Behind the scenes, the Scottish police launched an urgent investigation into the incident. Expert air crash investigators were called in who immediately got to work closely examining what remained of the plane's fuselage and they found a large hole that had clear signs of being caused by a massive explosion that had come from inside the aircraft and they also found traces of explosive residue. The plane's black box was later discovered on the crest of a hill in a grassy field just outside of the town. So the black box, like we mentioned before, is a flight data recorder 
It must be in every air vehicle and all flight information is recorded into the black box with a specific algorithm and that makes the recorded flight data accessible to authorities when needed. The black box on this flight showed beyond doubt that the plane's engine and safety features had been working soundly and that the accident was not the result of any kind of malfunction. So the air crash investigators soon concluded their findings by confirming the horrible truth that everyone suspected, but nobody wanted to acknowledge. The tragedy had been intentional. Someone had planted a bomb on that plane. This development created a lot more issues and made the investigation into the matter a lot more complicated. For starters, the plane was American, its flight had originated from Germany, and it had exploded over the UK. So right off the bat, three of the Western world's governments had been embroiled in a diabolical act of terrorism. I never thought of it like that, actually, because it, it, is, um, it is an act of terrorism on the UK, on America, and on Germany too, because, yeah, the flight originated there. And that is really interesting that, yeah, I'd, I'd never really thought of it as that. I just kind of think of it as a UK thing, but actually, yeah, it's more, more than anything, I suppose, the majority of the victims would have been American. So if anything, it's mostly an act of terrorism against America. But of course, the mm-hmm. UK and Germany is involved and other nationalities too. Yeah. But yeah, mostly it's an American act of terrorism, isn't it? Or on America. And also, if you didn't know for definite when the bomb was set to go off, if it potentially was set to go off earlier or later, it may not have affected the UK at all. So exactly, you, they they would not have known at this point, actually, are we all the intended type? Were one of us more of an intended? Yeah, you just don't know. I, th- I think that is really interesting as well, because I think just as the plane was about to head west across the Atlantic, where it, it would have crashed into the sea and, and there would have been no, there wouldn't have been any casualties on the ground or on, in the sea. So it's almost like, yeah, the last second while it's still travelling over the UK, the bomb is detonated. Maybe it was very deliberate that it was detonated rather than over the Atlantic, it was still over UK soil, I don't know. The subsequent investigation into the Lockerbie bombing would prove to be one of the largest and most complex in criminal history, involving law enforcement agencies and intelligence services from around the world. The initial investigation then was led by Scottish police, who were soon joined by the FBI, the CIA and other international agencies from Germany and Italy. The investigation was met with serious challenges from the word go, mainly the fact that the crash site was spread over a large area, the wreckage was scattered across a wide range of terrains, including fields, houses and streets. Once all of the body parts had been gathered up, criminal investigators from several nations began to collaboratively analyse various objects that had been thrown from the plane by the explosion. So more than 10,000 pieces of debris and aircraft items were collected from the area around the crash site, and painstakingly put back together, like a jigsaw. They were looking for evidence to support the air crash investigators' earlier claims that a bomb had been on board. And astonishingly, they eventually did find what remained of a badly damaged brown Samsonite suitcase, and it immediately struck investigators as peculiar due to the severe blast marks on it, and it looked to have been blown apart from the inside. Further tests showed that the case was covered with fresh residue from a highly dangerous explosive substance called Semtex. Semtex is a type of plastic explosive that was originally developed in Czechoslovakia in the 1960s. It is a powerful and versatile explosive that can be moulded into various shapes and hidden away, making it useful for a wide range of applications. 
The substance is known for its high explosive power, its reliability and its stability, as well as its resistance to shock, heat and friction. It can be detonated using various types of detonators, including electric, mechanical or chemical devices. And then not long after this discovery, the investigators found what remained of a Toshiba radio cassette player, which was also covered in a high amount of Semtex residue. After piecing it all back together, experts strongly believed that the radio cassette player had been stowed inside the suitcase and it had contained the explosive that brought down the plane. This finding was hugely important to the FBI because it gave them an enormous clue as to just who had done this and why. The method of storing explosives inside a radio cassette player, as it turned out, was not a new one. Far from it, in fact. The exact same method had been used before in various other terror attacks in parts of the world, including a failed bombing attempt in West Germany just four months prior. Further searches of the debris found the shredded remains of a grey shirt with a timer device concealed in the collar. So owing to the blast marks and the Semtex residue, it was determined that a timer device was linked up to the bomb's detonator and that the shirt had likely once belonged to the individual responsible for the massacre. The make and model of the timer was the exact same one that had been used in another thwarted terrorism attack from the previous year, which had been linked by the FBI to two Libyan nationals who were being monitored as active political terrorists. Then there was the Toshiba cassette player itself. Over 80% of this make and model of device was sold exclusively in Libya. It was very difficult to source one from anywhere else in the world. And several other items of clothing that were discovered were so heavily covered in blast marks and Semtex residue that they were also believed to have been stored inside the suitcase. They were analysed and it was determined by what was left of the inner labels stitched onto the fabric that they had been sourced from a textile shop in Malta, an archipelago in the central Mediterranean between Sicily and the Libyan coastline. So from all these findings, a short list of potential suspects was assembled. However, the common denominator was very clear – All of the clues so far were screaming out at the investigators to look to North Africa for answers. In September 1989, Scottish investigators travelled to the Maltese textile shop to take a statement from the staff. And the owner of the shop, an Italian man named Paul Gauci, was able to recall serving a dark-skinned, middle-aged, bearded man who spoke with a thick Libyan accent, who had purchased a grey shirt and several other items a month or so before the Lockerbie disaster. After showing the owner more than 50 images of known Libyan suspects on the FBI's watch list, he was able to pick out one man who he believed was the same Libyan-looking individual who he had served the year before. The man's name was Aldelbaset Al-Magrahi. Paul Gauci was also shown other images of Al-Magrahi and he felt sure that this was indeed the man that he had seen. Paul Gauci's identification of al-Magrahi alone was not enough for the FBI to nail him for the crime, but it was enough for them to add his name to the shortlist of main suspects. The investigation was still in its early stages and all possibilities were still being considered. What I love about this is it's really sort of neat investigation work, isn't it? Because they've recovered the suitcase that the bomb was in, they've kind of identified this clothing that was clearly in that I suitcase. Find that, I can't must, believe they can even do that. Yeah, I know, it's, it's mad. And and then they kind of trace the closet, clothing back to the original source. They go and visit this guy who owns a shop and he actually remembers selling it. And he then just looks at 50 photos of people on the FBI's watch list and picks the guy and says, yep, that was him. I, th- I just think that is, it's so neat and simple and just, yeah, we so often don't see that. 
in in investigations not because they're they're investigated badly but just because usually it's really messy and complicated i just love how this is just tracked back so precisely it's great yeah and also i'm sure we've talked before about how i would be a horrific witness because i just don't remember in like people and their faces maybe if a, a police um what they call like the the artist the sketch artist maybe if they worked with me and they could guide me I might be okay but if you said to me describe the person you just saw two seconds ago in that shop I would have no idea I'm terrible I remember doing that artist impression for you at work of that guy <laughs> that used to walk past he still walks past <laughs> does he and you immediately knew who it was so so you're good at identifying once somebody puts a photo in front of you probably I reckon you would get it maybe According to CIA analysis, several known terrorist groups have been quick to claim responsibility for the attack in the days following the bombing. These claims have been made via international telephone calls made to government facilities in the United States and parts of Western Europe. So, for instance, one mail caller claimed that the group called the Guardians of the Islamic Revolution had destroyed the plane in retaliation for Iran Air Flight 655 being shot down by US forces in the Persian Gulf the previous July. And another caller claiming to represent the Islamic Jihad organisation told ABC News in New York that the group had planted the bomb to commemorate Christmas and was an act of holy war against the West. So all of these claims were closely examined, but were eventually determined to be merely false claims of terrorists trying to hijack the incident to kind of strengthen their own political agendas. And at the same time, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, a particularly violent terrorist organization, was actively targeting airliners in Europe in a bid to influence the West to stop their support of Israel. So for a brief period, it was expected that Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian president and the leader of the PLO, was the culprit. Although the West's ongoing political disputes between Libya and Iran meant that they could not be ruled out of the equation either. It was common for Western government officials and diplomats to receive anonymous threatening phone calls from individuals claiming to be from an Islamic terrorist organisation, threatening to commit a wide variety of violent atrocities against the West. However, in the aftermath of Lockerbie, the USA's Federal Aviation Authority disclosed that just a few days earlier, they had been in contact by a worried US Embassy staff member in Helsinki, Finland, after a man with a Middle Eastern accent called to warn them that a suitcase with a bomb in it was to be placed on a Pan Am flight between Frankfurt and New York. He added that the attack was to be carried out by the Abu Nidal organisation, one of the PLO's many terrorist splinter cells. However, the PLO had been quick to deny all involvement in the attack. And this was felt to be believable. Larger terrorist operations like Lockerbie and 9-11, for example, require an enormous amount of money, not to mention multiple months or even years of detailed and meticulous planning. If the operation is successful, it makes little sense for the group behind it to then go and deny having had anything to do with it and to allow the credit to go elsewhere and aid someone else's cause. Nevertheless, the FBI were anxious to find out where in the world the bomb had originated. They already knew that one of their main suspects had been in Malta a few weeks prior to the bombing. However, no thanks to their lack of security checking in Frankfurt and London, nobody could be sure whether the bomb had been assembled in Malta or Germany. More than 15,000 witness statements were taken from individuals who had seen or used Pan Am Flight 103 in the 72 hours prior to the bombing. So anyone who had even a vague link to the case was interviewed and rigorously back-checked, including security staff, and baggage handlers who worked at the airports in Malta, Frankfurt and London. 
the detectives were convinced that someone must know something and could help them to catch the mastermind behind the attack. It took more than a year of painstakingly slow detective work, but their patience and resilience finally paid off. And I think that says a lot as well, doesn't it? You're, you're right, this is really, really good investigating, but more than a year of working on this one case, how hard that must have been every day to go to work and hope to find just another little little nugget or a little clue that can lead you a bit further along into the, the res- resolution of this. And you're constantly being derailed in the investigation because you've got these other organisations coming forward. There's a lot of kind of false starts and a lot of avenues that you've got to explore to discount before you can get the investigation back on track. So, yeah, I think that initial part of the investigation wasn't really foreshadowing the remainder of the investigation, which was a lot more complex and time and time consuming. Investigators from the Scottish police soon turned their attention to the timer that had been found concealed in the collar of the grey shirt. It was an MST-13 model, and the detectives were able to successfully trace the manufacturers to a small telecommunications firm based in the Netherlands. The Scottish investigators went to the head offices and took a statement from the company's CEO. It was clear that the man was not involved in the bombing in any way. However, the investigators were flawed when they were told that a Libyan firm were also based in the exact same building and that one of the founding partners would regularly fly in from Malta to conduct his business there. And his name was Abdelwaset Al-Magrahi. So hearing this name made the hairs on the back of their necks stand up. This was the same man that Paul Gauchi had identified in his Maltese textile store just weeks before the bombing. This was the breakthrough they had been looking for. From that point onwards, Al-Magrahi was their new prime suspect, and the investigation shifted its entire focus around him. Abdelbaset Al-Magrahi was born in Tripoli, in Libya, on the 1st of April 1952, to a poor family. Very little was known about his early life. However, in 1971, at the age of 19, he spent nine months studying in Cardiff in Wales, and in the late 1970s, he made multiple visits to the United States and the United Kingdom. A few years later, he was head of security for Libyan Arab Airlines, LAA, and director of the Center for Strategic Studies in Tripoli. It was alleged by the FBI that he was also an officer of the Libyan government's intelligence service. Investigators scrutinised airport records going back several months before Lockerbie, and it was discovered that Al-Magrahi had made several trips to Malta on a false name and used a forged passport and had stayed in a hotel on the same street on Tony Gauchi's shop in the same window of time that he'd allegedly been seen there. However, when the FBI followed his paper trail, they were disappointed to realise that Al-Magrahi had fled from Malta back to Libya just days after the bombing, after which he had disappeared and he had not returned. Undeterred, the deep dive into the life and crimes of Al-Magrahi continued all the same. The CIA, America's Central Intelligence Agency, were able to ascertain that Al-Magrahi was kind of a big deal in his native Libya. He was a trusted friend of the nation's leader at the time, Colonel Gaddafi, a notoriously ruthless military dictator whose hatred for the West was by no means a secret. Libya's intelligence service was known back then as the GSO and it had been linked to many government-sanctioned terrorist incidents going back more than a decade before Lockerbie. Indeed, many considered Colonel Gaddafi to be a terrorist and a tyrant himself who had personally ordered many previous terrorist attacks against his enemies in the West during his violent reign as the Libyan leader. 
Al-Megrahi had also been heavily involved in the selection and training of new recruits into the country's intelligence service, as well as acting as head of security for Libya's main airline. So in short, he was a connected man who had extremely dangerous friends in high places. I find Colonel Gaddafi fascinating. He's dead now, obviously, but... um... Yeah, just his dictatorship over Libya. And if you kind of, if you're interested in dictators and stuff, then it's, it's fascinating. His entire family and all of his sons who worked for him, some of them came over to London and they would have this huge allowance from their dad, Colonel Gaddafi, wired to the Libyan embassy in central London. And I think one of his sons got through something obscene like 200 million pounds in about 18 months, just spending it on you know, really living it up in London, going partying and all of that, oh private God. jets and sex workers, drugs. Yeah, just crazy stories out there. It would make a great film or something for sure. We might have to do a little episode sometime. I, I would love to, yeah. And he is, I mean, Colonel Gaddafi is obviously a criminal, was a criminal, yeah. and so were his sons. But there's so many crimes that they're responsible for, war crimes, basically, that mm. it just, it, it would be really difficult. But I'd love to do an episode on Gaddafi and his origins and yeah all the kind of rumors that swirl around him and his family it'd be absolutely fascinating yeah I think he should I'd, I'd be really interested to listen to that definitely so whilst following this lead investigators stumbled across another name that they were already familiar with Lamen Khalifa Fima a manager at Malta's largest airport who had mysteriously gone missing the day after Lockerbie so the FBI searched his home and they discovered incriminating journal entries that linked him to al-Megrahi. It was strongly believed that Laman Khalifa Fima had acted as an accomplice for al-Megrahi and had assisted his efforts in getting a bomb from Malta to Germany. The FBI and the Scottish police began working with the theory that, following the direct orders of his boss, Colonel Gaddafi, al-Megrahi had used his fake passport to check in the Samsonite suitcase onto the flight, whilst Laman Khalifa Fima had simply ensured that the bag wasn't messed with or otherwise prevented from getting on the plane. After this, both men simply left the airport and fled back to Libya. As for the question of Libya's motive for the attack, the answer remains unverified. However, a strong argument could be that America's military aggression in the region during that time frame may have finally come back to bite them. Around two years prior to the Lockerbie bombing, in April 1986, US warplanes had carried out a devastating bombing raid on Tripoli and Benghazi in Libya, in retaliation for what the government, the US government, claimed was Libyan involvement in terrorist attacks against American targets. And that raid resulted in the deaths of dozens of Libyans, many of them civilians. So thus, the Lockerbie bombing was believed to be kind of the deadly culmination of a long-running tit-for-tat conflict between America and Libya. And the total 270 victims were merely innocent civilians who had been in the wrong place at the wrong time, collateral damage of a revenge attack over a war that they had had absolutely nothing to do with. The CPS in the United Kingdom and the FBI in the USA felt that they had more than enough evidence to pin the bombing on al-Megrahi and FEMA, and the Allied governments appealed directly to Colonel Gaddafi to give up the two men and extradite them back to the West to face trial, or, as the US warned, they would face some pretty severe consequences. However, it came as no surprise whatsoever when Gaddafi puffed out his chest and simply refused. All attempts at negotiation were met with silence from Libya. The US government had anticipated such an arrogant and defiant response from the Libyan dictator. They may have even been secretly hoping for it. 
So they launched what was arguably the most powerful weapon that they had in their arsenal, economic warfare. Harsh economic trade sanctions were imposed against Libya. All trade routes between Libya and the West were cancelled with immediate effect, and the US went elsewhere for their energy resources. Several of America's Western allied nations followed suit and issued their own trade embargoes against Libya. The economical impacts were enormous. Within a year, Libya's GDP had dropped by two thirds. The once prosperous country went spiralling into poverty, along with all of its citizens. This incited civil unrest amongst the Libyan people who blamed Gaddafi's tyranny and arrogance for their misfortune. And the tension in the region became so much that it birthed the very real threat of full-on revolt. Furthermore, Gaddafi's long-term aims of establishing his own caliphate, making Libya a central Islamic state, had failed miserably because of his actions. The mounting pressure forced Gaddafi to drastically change his moral and political stance with regards to his relationship with the West. Where he had once openly despised them and called for their destruction, he now desperately needed their support back. So he eventually agreed to negotiate, and it was decided that al-Magrahi and FEMA would be extradited to a neutral territory to face trial. To sweeten the deal, Colonel Gaddafi publicly took full responsibility for the attack and agreed to pay significant damages to the victim's family. I know that obviously it shouldn't be a surprise, but he's literally... For his own um, kind of like greed and ego, he's allowing all of the people in his country basically to starve and to fall into poverty. And it takes something that major, like his own people wanting to revolt against him and civil unrest for him to then go, okay, we will, I will come out and say that we did it and I'll extradite them. For me, I, I never want to get political on our podcast because it's a true crime podcast and we, we sort of always have that agreement between ourselves that we don't sort of enter into that. But I can't sort of let it go that in retaliation for, for this awful tragedy that happened over Lockerbie, we and the US government then basically punish a country, innocent civilians, tens of thousands, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands yeah. of people who don't have access to food, education now, uh, welfare, hospitals, stuff like that. You know, I just kind of think, Oh, you just, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is, and I'm no expert in it, but it's so easy to just blame Libya and, and not look at what we then did to them. So, but that's my little rant over. I know, I do, I, I do understand where you're coming from with that, absolutely. And I guess that's kind of, yeah, my thinking is, I can't believe it took that much for Gaddafi to to then come to this point. But then actually, that's a big thing for countries to then threaten and go through with so yeah it's a lot isn't it and he's I remember this around this time because he really started to rebuild his reputation on the national stage he would be invited to UN conferences and he was taken seriously as a leader of Libya on the world stage and there are pictures of him meeting Tony Blair for example and having meetings with all these other world leaders so in lots of ways he did try I suppose and repair what he'd done and that the the damages that were paid to the victims' families. I don't know if they ever got that money. I think they probably did, but it was collectively it was billions of pounds was paid out. Billions. So there would have been several million pounds for each uh family member. Well each, you know, in respect of each victim would have been paid to their families. It was millions of pounds each. So yeah, it was um he really did try and repair that, but ultimately he he was a dictator still and was just masking this you know, still terrible behaviour of his by trying to wash it all and say that I'm kind of reformed when he wasn't. That's it, exactly. His 
his kind of offer to pay significant damages to the victim's families was met with mixed reactions. Some, like he said, saw that as a really positive step towards reconciliation, a sign that Libya was willing to take responsibility for its actions. And then others, probably I'm in this court more, it's just a cynical attempt to curry favor with the West and trying to avoid further punishment. And yeah, okay, so I can't get my own way doing this. So I'll just schmooze instead and I'll get my way in this way. I just, yeah. And I also feel that when Gaddafi was starting to be personally impacted by those sanctions that's probably when he started to think right we need to repair our relationship with the west now i don't think he gave a shit about the people in his country it was purely when he started being impacted and could no longer get a private jet or could no longer get designer clothes and a rolex watch because we couldn't send anything there that that's the only reason i'm sure yeah i'm with you on that Overall, Gaddafi's response to Lockerbie was a significant moment in the history of Libya's relations with the West. So of course it did not completely repair the damage caused by the bombing, but it did pave the way for improved relations between Libya and the international community in the years that followed. Al-Magrahi and FEMA were put on trial in the Netherlands under Scottish law, which has a provision for holding trials on foreign soil in certain circumstances. The trial began in the year 2000 and lasted for almost 12 months. Al-Magrahi was charged with 270 counts of murder, so one for each person who died in the Lockerbie bombing, as well as other charges relating to the bombing. The trial was conducted before a panel of three Scottish judges and the proceedings were held in a specifically built courthouse at Camp Zeist, a former American airbase in the Netherlands. The prosecution's case against Al-Magrahi was built around overwhelming circumstantial evidence, including the discovery of clothing fragments that were linked to Al-Magrahi and the presence of bomb-making components that were traced back to Libya. During the trial, Al-Magrahi maintained his innocence and his defence team argued that he had been framed by the Libyan government. However, in 2001, the judges found Al-Magrahi guilty of all charges and sentenced him to life in prison with a minimum term of 27 years and he was incarcerated in Scotland's Greenock Prison. The prosecution's case against Alamin Khalifa FEMA, however, was a different story. Try as they could, they did not produce enough damning evidence, and his defence lawyers successfully highlighted the multiple areas of doubt in his alleged involvement, arguing that the prosecution's case was based on circumstantial evidence and that FEMA had no motive or opportunity to participate in the bombing. They also pointed to the fact that no forensic evidence linked FEMA to the crime scene and he was eventually acquitted of all charges and allowed to head back to Libya as a free man. In 2009, after serving just eight years behind bars, Al-Magrahi was granted a compassionate release from prison due to his terminal prostate cancer. He was allowed to return to Libya to spend his remaining days with his family. Now, this decision made by the Scottish government was hugely controversial and it was met with widespread outrage. Even attempts by US President Barack Obama and UK Prime Minister David Cameron to block it were unsuccessful. And after his release, Al-Magrahi continued to appeal his conviction. He died in Tripoli, in Libya, in 2012, still maintaining his innocence for the Lockerbie bombing. I do remember that featuring quite heavily in the news at the time because it was incredibly controversial, that decision. So released on compassionate leave, only a few years into his sentence, a life sentence, to spend his remaining days with his family in his home country. He went on to live another three years. And I also think that decision by the Scottish government to release him, there must have been something more at play there. They would not have done that unless there was something in it for them. So there's got to be a reason, whether it was uh, uh, Libya were releasing 
UK citizens from prison. It was like a prison swap type thing they've done before. Mm, There's got to be something, hasn't it? It was a bartering thing to do for us to get something, which has obviously, I guess, not ever been made public. Yeah, there's definitely more behind it because otherwise you'd maybe make allowances for his family to come into the country to come and visit or do something along the, move him to somewhere different within the UK, not just let him go. And yeah, like you said, carry on then for another three years. Yeah, I think it was a smokescreen. I I think he was, he did have cancer and he was ill, but it probably Mm -hmm. wasn't terminal at that point. It was just, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll use that as, as the excuse for releasing you back to your home country. It was, there was another reason why he was released. It was nothing to do with him having cancer and days Mm. to live. Yeah. The Lockerbie bombing remains one of the deadliest terrorist attacks in history. And the question of who was ultimately responsible for the attack continues to be a matter of debate and investigation. After FEMA was acquitted of all charges related to the Lockerbie bombing in 2001, he was allowed to return to Libya. And he was the only person who was acquitted in the Lockerbie trial. Following his return to Libya, he reportedly kept a low profile and was not involved in public life. FEMA has not faced any additional charges related to the Lockerbie bombing since his acquittal and his current whereabouts are unknown. It is worth noting that Libya as a country was also held responsible for the bombing and it was not until years later after the Libyan government agreed to take responsibility and pay compensation to the victims' families that relations between Libya and the international community really did begin to improve. Today, Lockerbie has a memorial to the victims of the bombing, which is located in Drivesdale Cemetery, just outside of the town. The memorial consists of a simple stone, and it's got a plaque bearing the names of the 270 victims, surrounded by a landscaped garden. Over the years, Lockerbie has become a popular destination for tourists interested in learning more about the history of the bombing and its aftermath. The town has several shops and restaurants, as well as several bed and breakfasts and other accommodation for its new influx of visitors. Overall, while the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 continues to cast a long shadow over the town, Lockerbie has worked hard to move forward and build a positive future for its, for its residents and for its visitors alike. So there we go. Thank you so much for listening to that episode, guys. It's, it's um, a really hard one, isn't it? Yeah, it was really difficult to get through, wasn't it? Yeah, really, really tricky. And it it really, this really, of course, put Lockerbie on the map. And I I think it sort of is known a little bit now uh, for sort of grief tourism. And I I do think not a lot of visitors, but there are visitors probably every single month that are specifically there, not even necessarily to pay their respects to the victims. But in that sort of grief tourist kind of way, I do think they do get quite a bit of that and people asking questions and that must be uncomfortable for the residents who remember it and have family members a generation or so back that that would have been lost in that that dreadful bombing it's just yeah it's just it's so hard isn't it to even think of the right words to say because like I understand people want to pay their respects and I don't know I just I do really struggle with that as well but yeah I just think we just have to remember those that it's just a, an absolutely horrific number of people that lost their lives. Yeah, absolutely tragic. Thank you for listening, everybody. And we'll be back next week for another episode. So we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.